Hello? Hello? Yes, you hear me? Oh, there we go. <laughs> I think everyone in the township heard us. <laughs> okay. It's a great privilege, a privilege to be up here. Uh, happy to be here. Uh, it's a little bit colder than I was hoping it would be. <laughs> My dad told me it was 70 and sunny to lure me up here. So I had to borrow his clothes to preach. No, actually, these are my clothes. Okay. Uh, I want to preach on something um, uh, with, uh, about anxiety and fear and stress. Um, anxiety plagues all of us. Whether it's, anxi- whether it's anxiety over making enough money to pay the bills, uh, who will get elected president this Tuesday, or trying to, to make the perfect marriage. We suffer from anxiety, fear, um, insert another word from a thesaurus. And sometimes we even wish our anxieties were more serious, but if we're honest with ourselves, the anxieties are actually quite frightened about pretty minor things. Uh, too often, we lay awake at night fretting over a conversation with a boss, classmate, friend, or just someone that we want to like us, wondering, what's wrong? I, what did I say? What, why don't they like me? I know that the things I'm anxious over uh, really quite insignificant. Uh, things like car repairs. Um, will the bills win today? Uh, actually, I kind of stopped caring. They, <laughs> I don't care about anybody else in sports, but. Uh, or, you know, will I get good grades? And sometimes they're more serious. Two days ago, Emery was rushed to a hospital, wondering what's going to happen. I didn't know I was going into work. My mom called me and just feel very helpless. We are anxious people, health, family, friends, career, success. We worry about it all. And so it was for the people that Peter was writing to in 1 Peter. If you have your Bibles, open to 1 Peter chapter 5. The letter which deals in large part with persecution and overcoming um, such obstacles uh, is, is pretty popular. A lot of people may have done study in First Peter, and there seem to be family issues, government issues, uh, um, cultural issues with persecution. And Peter is saying, uh, um, you know, endure. Uh, it, it's be, like being refined uh, by a fire. But it's very interesting because the very end here in 1 Peter 5, there's a discussion about fear and anxiety, which seems rightfully so considering the circumstances. Now, you should know there are two major types of fear and anxiety. One type is an in-the-moment adrenaline rush. You know, a bus is hurling down and looks like it's going to run over a baby, and a mom picks up a school bus. Um, and, you know, it's not like she's a bodybuilder. just there's an adrenaline rush that allows her... To, to do superhuman things. Uh, or there's uh, something about you know, a car going off a road, able to leap from it when it goes into a lake. And there's a sense where a, a quick burst of adrenaline rushing through your body, coursing through your veins, into your brain, allows you to slow things down and think. And there's, it's actually really a, a safety thing going on in your body. Um, and and it's, it's a designed defense mechanism. But anxiety is different from this fear. It's a slow and steady onslaught of, oh no, I'm not sure what's happening for a long time. 
And if fear in a moment is like a thunderstorm, then anxiety is like a slow, steady drizzle. Now, to the church in Asia Minor that received this letter, there is no doubt that persecution leads us to probably conclude the anxiety that Peter is talking about is the first kind, the fight or flight, the someone's coming to persecute me, to kill me. Um, martyrdom has probably a way of making you feel like it's slowing things down, running as if it's a, a quick fear of like the woman picking up the bus. But uh, the reality is that most commentators believe that First Peter was written pre-Christian martyrdom. Um, Christians were being persecuted, but they weren't being killed, uh, and not yet openly, or at least in this region. So a lot of what the Christians were dealing with were cultural, legal, relational problems because of Christianity. Many were probably thinking they'd lose their business because they were Christians. Perhaps many thought their families would desert them because they were social pariahs. Much like in today's culture, if a man converts from Islam to Christianity, his family cuts him off. Women who were married to non-Christians probably feared the backlash of a pagan husband. Peter deals with that here. The church in Asia Minor was facing so many social and cultural issues that would lead them to be extremely anxious in a very relatable way to us today. Probably persecution more than, but it, we sometimes I think look at this letter and think, well, you know, it's not like Hitler, Germany, people aren't going through the streets looking for Christians. Well, that's not what's going on here either. Um, and so the, their jobs, relationships, success, etc., on the line because they were Christians. Christians at this time were not cool. No one was walking around with WWJD bracelets. You know? And celebrities weren't getting up at the Greco-Roman Music Awards thanking Jesus for their success. They were instead seen as weirdos who exalted cannibalism. Where is the cannibalism seen? The Lord's Supper, right? Greeks and Romans couldn't understand why we'd eat Jesus' body. It made no sense to them, even to the pagan religions. And so we're weirdos. And this is where we find the text Peter writes in in 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. So we're going to go through the text. It's just two verses today. And we're going to come through three points of how humility heals anxiety. The first is, is that humility is going to give us direction, humility is going to give us confidence, and humility is going to give us hope. So you're taking notes, you can see where I'm going with this. Uh, so let's read that. So, and actually, let me repeat those again. Humility gives us direction, humility gives us confidence, humility gives us hope. So humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he might exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So how does Paul, or Paul, Peter, deal with anxiety? He talks about humility. Now, that's weird. Why would Peter do that? Most people dealing with anxiety need direction. They need an answer. How does humility give the person the answer? I mean, after all, the person struggling with anxiety has to feel worthless, has to feel helpless. I mean, that's why they're anxious, right? Things are out of their control. And if they were confident, they would have made the decision. Well, I think that's a misunderstanding of what humility really is. So the first point, humility gives us direction. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Well, the word anxiety in Greek is actually merimna, and it literally means to divide or draw in different directions. Uh, it, the root origin describes a state of being pulled apart Thus, when circumstances are difficult, it is easy to let oneself be dominated by anxiety or worry. 
Have you seen someone fret over worry and anxiety so much, it's, it, they don't know what to do? They're, they're literally from the insides being eaten out because they don't know where to go. They're helpless. And when we are worried, we feel like we're at a continual fork in the road. It's kind of like what that means, anxiety. We feel powerless. We play movies of what if in our imaginations almost continually. Reel after reel of what would happen if I did this, what would happen if I did that. Also, when we're most anxious, we usually have one of two reactions. We either feel the need to talk to everyone about our business, or we contain it so much that it's debilitating and paralyzing. Um, Let's look at the first. The first, when needing to talk to everybody about our anxiety, is an external source of direction. So there's an external source and there's an internal source for direction. I'm under the mindset that when we talk so much about our anxiety to other people, what we're actually looking for is someone to give us objective direction about what to do. We want someone to speak into our lives and give us a course of action to pursue. When we go to counselors, when we go to therapists, we're actually giving them power to, in a way, disciple us. Uh, That's why counselors, that's why if you're thinking about going to counseling uh, for any reason, it better be a good biblical counselor because you're giving them the power to give you the direction of how to make sense of the worldview you have. Okay? And so at the root of it, non-biblical counselors are going to tell you things that are not from God. And I'm not talking about like chemical deficiencies. Um, and what you're doing is you're going under them as a disciple to say, to help me make sense of this. That's why when things go bad, we'll consult professionals to make sense of what we do. If it's a health issue, we ask a doctor. If it's a financial issue, we talk to an economist or finance guru. It's, if it's relational, we'll talk to a wise friend or a counselor. The word of the professional becomes the word of God to us. Now, I think we hear this and think, yeah, well, I'm not a doctor. I should take comfort in what a doctor says. Right? I'm not a financial specialist. I should probably uh, let the investor's word be kind of his truth to me. And to some extent, you're right. But two things. One, no doctor or specialist can give you 100% certainty of what the outcome is. Okay. You need to understand that probably m- much more than you, they can, but you don't put your hope in what they're saying. And the second is the process is more telling of when trouble strikes, when anxiety sets in, we look for an external entity for direction. And anxiety has a funny way of showing us our limitations. The second response is an internal look for hope. And for others, anxiety becomes so debilitating they can't talk about it. Right? They stuff it. It's paralyzing. And this is even worse. Because the person either doesn't know how to communicate it to anyone, or they don't think anyone can really help him. So they just keep drifting forward in life, knowing that they cannot do anything and nobody can help them. They're paralyzed, suffocated, and alone. And the world is coming undone as fear and anxiety set in, and we are looking for control. Um, that's really the deep issue is we're looking for control. We either look in ourselves for control, dig deeper, you can do this. ton of non-Christian, and believe it or not, not all Christian counseling books are created equal. A lot of them are a Christian form of a secular worldview of use God to make your life better, use God for this. And essentially, the issue is you're looking for something outside yourself because you know your limitations to give you control or you're looking deeper within yourself, buck up, you can do this, live strong. Lance Armstrong, he found control, he dug deep, he got on a bike and he rolled his way to, to, to hope. 
You know, and, and, and that is essentially what we're doing is we realize we need control. As humans, we, as the world seems undone, control is our first thing we need. It's true. Uh, when I was in middle school, I felt like there was a lot of control of my life. I had good parents. <laughs> but, you know, they wanted to monitor my friends, make sure I had good friends. And, um, and I, I went to private school. That was pretty... Uh, fairly strict. But anyways, I think mo most middle schoolers would think that the, the world is out to get them. So it's not an indictment on my family, my school. But it was very cool to be into like anti-establishment stuff. You know, anarchy and music that would be like, yeah, that sounds really cool. Uh, but you don't really know. <laughs> it, but it, it, the problem is that rebellion, because there seemed to be so much control, no control, staying up late, going to the mall, whatever, that's cool. And you don't really realize it's the control of your parents that helps keep your life in equilibrium. And then when you get a little bit older, you realize anarchy is extremely terrifying. And in fact, I, I think God created us in such a sense where man refuses to be in disorder, so much so that we will give up rights to dictators so that there's some method of, I'm not staying up all night with a shotgun at the front door. You'd rather live under Stalin. You'd rather live under um, Pol Pot and all these different uh, countries, <coughs> even though a minority really runs all those countries. Because having some form of control and uniformity is better than disorder. And so that's what we're seeking. And we're just looking for control. We're looking for someone to give us uh, direction. So we either look for outside or inside, we look for a specialist, we look deep within ourselves. E either way, control is the thing we most want. And what Peter's saying is shocking. He says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Well, the mighty hand of God. The text here is referring not to a giant hand in the sky, but God's providential hand. The word mighty is kratios in Greek, from which we get the word autocratic. Okay, it's, the mighty hand here is not a picture of God's physical hand of justice, but God's providential care for all people in time and space. You used to look at this and think, okay, amidst persecution, God will pay these people back. God will get these people. I'm humbling myself under the mighty hand because he will, vengeance is, is his, saith the Lord. But the reality here is, is, is he's saying, no, I mean, yes, <laughs> But no, not here. What I'm saying is, is I led you in my providential care into this trial. And a lot of, uh, over the last couple thousand years, a lot of reign and rule of a king was depicted by hands. You think, I ruled with an iron fist. He had a very tight hand. On the, and so this is just an idea of God's mighty hand is a strong hand, and it's a perfect reign, and he's purely sovereign in where he's leading you. What he's saying is, you know that problem you're facing, the bills piling up, the unknown method for how to pay for them? Well, you're in that predicament because God's providential hand has brought you here. You know the problem you have at work? God led your life to this point. But why? Peter starts the phrase off with humble yourself, which is passive. You're going to be humbled, essentially. Don't you will be humbled and allow yourself to be humble. He's saying, allow yourself to be humbled by God's hand. Problems will arise, trouble will come. Being unsure about what to do next will happen. It's not accidental, but don't fight it. Don't claw, kick, and scream that it happened. Instead, allow it to happen and accept that it came from the Father's loving hand. 
He brought you into it for a reason, and the only way out is to be humbled under him. I know that's a hard word. People say, he brought me here to leave me here. And we don't want to come to the fact that God could have brought us here. Well, it's the flip side. God's not strong enough, and somehow it happened by the world's chance. I'd rather think that God led you there and has a purpose for it. Point two, humility gives us confidence. In the last point, we may have left off a little unsure of the hope. <laughs> you know where to look for direction, but that left little for confidence. Well, I think we can find hope and confidence in the next two points. The first two offered a, just very little of it. Well, it says that he might exalt you at the proper time. We humble ourselves to be exalted. It sounds like a paradox. It sounds oxymoronic. When I read this text, I think of the text where Jesus says, whoever forfeits his life will gain it. It seems like, like certain opposites. How can humbling lead to exaltation? How can losing equal gaining? Well, there's a great book that C.S. Lewis wrote called The Great Divorce. And um, it's, it's really a story about there's a, a bus ride or there's a group of people who leave hell and take a bus ride to heaven. And what he says is that uh, it's not as if God banishes people to hell. It's that people in hell want to be in hell because they don't want to worship God. Even if they took a bus ride, and so it's really kind of more of a thought experiment, if you took a bus ride to heaven and dropped them off where they could talk with people, they wouldn't want to be in heaven because they couldn't stop worshiping themselves in heaven and, and worship God. There's always something. And so, and so what he's saying is, is that you are never closer to hell than when you think more of yourself and more in heaven than when you don't think about yourself at all. What he's saying is that hell is a place for me people. <laughs> Not just murderers and rapists, but victims and other types of people who are religious. People who do life with themselves is the real focus. They are totally consumed with themselves and it is impossible for them to stop thinking about their lives. <clears throat> Actually, one of the characters in the book couldn't stop whining about how their life never worked out. And they were talking to an angel, and, and the angel at one moment released a herd of, of stallions into a field to make a thundering sound to, to, to scare the person. Just, and it seemed ridiculous, but the point was, is they were just wanted the person for a moment to stop thinking about themselves. And so there might be a chance of hope for them to focus on Christ. Heaven, on the other hand, is a place where you never consider yourself. The only person you think about is Christ and your brothers and sisters in heaven. Being so focused on Christ, it propels them to love each other better and not consider how they're slighted, how they're victims, and how people owe them anything. I think that's the point of this passage. God leads us through suffering as a way to focus less on ourselves and more upon Christ. To be made like him in his suffering, it says in Philippians 3. Now, many people hear this text and think that that's it. I go through this trial and voila, I'll have a better life on the other side. Because I endured. We see the Joseph narrative uh, as an example of something good that happened because he went through so much bad. But that thinking looks at suffering not as a way to think less about yourself and more about Christ, but instead only looks, as Christ, looks at Christ as an employer who now owes you wages. Uh, to, and, and as, as acting as your servant, uh, and you fulfilled his hours. 
They're not being made like Christ. In fact, they're going in the opposite direction. We think of Christ's uh, suffering. It says they endured hardship so they can take from Christ. But Christ went through hardship so that he could give us completely perfect obedience. And we go through hardships to get. That's why we don't make sense of this. That's why we had such a hard time in the first section when we said Christ's mighty hand leads us into a problem. Well, not Christ, not us. He wouldn't do that. Why not? Because we're thinking about what we're going to get out of it in a carnal, sinful way. Not how can I be made like Christ, taking from me the idols that I'm hung, holding on to so that I'm a more ready worshiper of Christ. Peter gives us confidence, not in the life that we may get here. We may never turn out like Joseph. That's a hard word, but it's a true word. And people who say that are liars and don't read their Bible. We may never turn out like Daniel. And people who say, ah, you lost a job, God's got a better one for you, are lying to you. I'm sorry, it may not happen. People who say, ah, I'm sorry you lost this, you get something better. On this earth, they don't know what they're talking about. It may be true. It may be true. Didn't happen to Christ and his followers, though. People who write your best life now and talk about getting things here and health, wealth, and prosperity are totally from hell. Being made a son of God is the greatest exaltation, and that's the payoff, is that you're being made a better son and daughter of Christ. And the longer you live in eternity, where life keeps going further and further, I guarantee you 10,000 years from now, if you were to look back at the exceedingly smaller and smaller life percentage you lived here on earth, do you really want to wish that your best life was now? Things didn't work out now. From lowly persecution in a culture to the life, to afterlife, being a son of God, that is truly the exaltation that Peter is talking about. Because it never worked out for them. It got worse in Peter's time. They died. It just got worse. And people who say, it's going to get better for you. There's another guy or girl. There's another job. There's another friend. In heaven, for sure. On earth, I hope but in heaven for sure. We think exaltation is getting better, friend, and, and those are painful. I don't want to minimize those. And I do mean to, and I don't mean to downplay them, but don't sell short the exaltation of being a son of God or daughter from God by being upset with God because he didn't give you the relationship, social standing, or job you expected. He has given you so much more than that job. Let's take a look at this proper time. The phrase of the proper time can sound really negative. It sounds like a parent saying, you can eat all the chocolate you want at the right time. It sounds like it'll never happen, right? Yeah, never get that. yeah, that's right. And to a child who is solely focused on chocolate, the reality of eating the candy is so far off into the future that we get depressed. It'll never end. It'll never happen. I'll never be able to stay up. I'll never be able to. And then you get older and like, I was able to. It happened much faster. It's the same way. I'll never endure. You will. And it'll be there. The problem is that we are so focused only on the deliverance of our anxiety that it, it seems so far off. Our life, 
or death depends upon God delivering us from our problem. Ladies and gentlemen, the only reason you have anxiety is because you worship the problem in your life and you want to employ God to feed the idol. When he says no, not yet, he's merely destroying the idol in your life. The time for lifting up comes after you realize the person lifting you up is God and not the idol you want resolved. But the proper time is is so positive. It shows that anxiety over the problem we have now will end. There is an expiration date on your trial. There is a proper time. There will be a day when you, you call your anxiety and problems yesterday. And when that day comes, you will be refined and ready for exaltation. There will be a lifting up. And we need to take confidence in that. Point three, humility gives us hope. It says, casting all your cares upon him for he cares for you. I don't know about you, but that's one of the, my favorite verses in the entire Bible. This Greek word here for casting uh, is casting or throwing, but both of these in the English translation are, are actually poor representations of what it really means. It doesn't articulate the idea. It's not just throw off or cast off your anxiety. Did you think it was like casting like a, like, like a fishing rod would cast? Because um, that's how we mostly use it in our culture. Um, but the, 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 the idea, though, is more like it's casting or taking off and giving somebody else to take on. It's not taking off where it's gone now. It's passing it. It's almost as if I'm, uh, if I'm lifting weights and someone's spotting me and it's too much for me and I can't do it, the other, I'm handing it and they're now holding the bar for me and they're now dealing with the weight and I'm free. It's the idea that someone else will worry for you. Someone else will endure, endure your problems. It's just not gone. They're not obliterated. It's not God, ah, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. It's, I want to worry about it. When we feel anxiety, we feel so alone. We feel like no one understands. No one cares. But that's not true for in Christ. Christ not only cares, he wants to be the one who cares for it and wants you not to deal with it. Like Lewis is the great divorce, focus on him and your anxieties dissipate because you care nothing for yourself. But how we do it, the, world, uh, the word cast is also used in the gospel. And it says they, they brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and put it on Jesus. They did not just throw pieces of their coat on the colt. They threw all of the coat on the colt. All of the coat on the colt. <laughs> That's the idea, is placing it fully, not partially. It's not sticking, uh, stipping, uh, uh, dipping a toe in the water, but it's jumping full in with giving Christ the full weight of it. Spurgeon says, there is nothing Christ dislikes more than for his people to make show of him and not use him. He loved to be worked. He is a great laborer. He always was for his father, and now he loves to be a great laborer for his brethren. The more burdens you put on his shoulders, the better he will love you. Cast your burden on him. Now this whole push for putting our burden on Christ. What's the reason? Well, to put our anxiety on Christ's shoulders isn't cruel. It doesn't make us lesser of people. It doesn't make us less self-sufficient. Well, in a way it does, but it's the gospel. To not put your worry and anxiety on him is to maintain that you can save yourself. Whatever idol that is in trouble of being lost and you're fearing its demise, you think you can save 
You think you can swoop in and save a relationship that you made an idol and then you can become the protagonist of the story. But in the reality of life, your idol is a waste. It's nothing. It's a meager way for you to maintain that uh, you can be a savior. Evidently, we create idols that we can become Christ in our attempt to win them. Romance, success, whatever, we create a small gospel where we are the savior. And our imaginations are not neutral. They spin lies, making the dreams come true in a false reality. You should know that our imaginations are like NOS to the engine of our lives, just driving us, our sinful hearts, just driving us off the edge quicker. And what anxiety shows us is that in our idolatristic world, we cannot even play this savior. Because the romance is about to leave, the job is about to end, the money is about to dry, and we need a real superhero. We were like children on Halloween wearing a Superman outfit. Seinfeld talks about uh, how he ordered or purchased a Superman outfit uh, and it came in the mail and he thought walking around, he was about 12 or 13, he would look exactly like Superman. But when it comes in the mail, it's actually like two sizes too big and it looks like he's wearing Superman's pajamas. And then on top of that, his mom makes him wear his winter coat to not get a cold. And it's just as ridiculous when we play the role of the Savior. Our minds think, if we just had this, if we could just do this, I'll make it okay, I'll make it all right. But it's just as ridiculous of a word picture. Um, playing the part of a Savior doesn't make us one. And when problems arise that makes us anxious, anxious, it should be a gospel symbol, like a bat signal in the sky of our souls that, sign, that stand as a sign of SOS, our trouble. We are in trouble and we need a savior. Spurgeon wrote again, I heard a man who was walking along a high road with a pack on his back. He was growing weary and was therefore glad when a gentleman came along in a carriage and asked him uh, to take a seat with him. The gentleman noticed that he kept his pack strapped to his shoulders, and so he said, Why do you not put your pack down? Oh, why, sir, said the traveler, I did not venture to impose. I was, it was very kind of you to take me up. I could not expect you to carry my pack as well. Why, said the friend, do you not see that whether your pack is on your back or off your back, I have to carry it? My hearer, it is so with your trouble. Whether you, do, whether you worry or do not worry, it is the Lord who must care for it. We all need Christ's community. You need to cast your cares upon him because you need to realize that you need a savior. You are anxious, you are feel, fearful because you are playing the savior in your problem. And to play that part puts the cross in question. If you could save yourself from your current problem, why did he die? Now, I'm not suggesting your money, relational, job, job problem are cured because of the cross. You know, that going back on the first problem, saying just because you're trusting Christ doesn't mean on this earth you get something better. Becoming a Christian may not get you a job interview. But to take the cross makes you stop believing that getting the job will make the anxiety go away. Philippians 2 talks about how he was humbled so that we might be lifted up. We are asked to be humbled under the mighty hand of God so that we might be lifted up. Christ was humbled. How? 
Well, he went from being weighted on hand and foot in heaven to being born in a stable and placed in a trough for barn animals. That's pretty humiliating. When his family rejects him, his friends reject him. Yet he allowed himself to be humbled under the providential hand of his father. He, allowed, he followed the providential father or hand of the father to the cross and it culminated in the, his humiliating death on a cross where they hung a sign that mocked him as king of the Jews. But through his death, God's providential hand was never more precise, saving all of humanity when Satan thought he had won. And Christ was never more lifted up that in the future, it says, every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What's the most shocking is not that we should want to cast our burdens on Christ, but that he actually wants to receive our burdens. I mean, how much can he take? And he wants, and yet he wants more and more. Christ not only wanted your sin and shame and dealings at the cross, but every day afterwards. When he showed Thomas the nail-pierced hands as a sign of what he had done, he wasn't showing him just the finish line of what Christ would bear for us. Now on the cross, he endured your shame and now wants to endure your worries. He wants to be the one fearing and worrying for you. What's more is that it offers us eternal hope, the God whose providential hand rules the world is carrying your burden of the unknown. At least your burden is finally in the hands of someone that can do something about it. 2 Corinthians 5 says, He was made sin so that we might be called. He, made, he was made sin who knew no sin so that we might be called the righteousness of Christ. He already bore the guilt and shame by which we are all anxious over in pride and unbelief. And yet says, Son, daughter, give it to me. Though the nails are there on this hand as a reminder of what this thing costs, he says, remind me again, I want to love you. Humility is the answer for anxiety. It's the medicine. And it's a sign, it should be a sign of idols in our lives. And we get so far ahead, so far, our head so far over our feet that we think, we start asking the questions of how is God going to make this work? How is God going to do this? Rather than taking a step back and saying, am I looking at this as this being an idol and a making God work for me? And when we take a step back and we look at the cross and we think Christ died for us but continually wants to bear the burden, gives us a new perspective on the fear and anxiety, the relationships, the jobs, the health problems. I'll tell you, Christ is the only one who's been on both sides of this world, right? And he says, I'm telling you, I've been there, and it didn't work out very well when my purpose was served, but I'm telling you, to be with me is what it's all about. That's the great hope. The great hope is that we don't just get a great vacation to heaven, but our needs are met relationally with Christ. Our health is met in heaven by a Savior who endured the worst health so that we could be with him. Focus on him and your problems dissipate. Allow the gospel to set in and you find confidence and peace. Let's pray. Dearly Father Lord, I, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for, um, just thank you for the gospel, Lord. We, we 
tore your clothes, gambled over your tunic or cloak, and fed you his up, and man, we just mocked you. And no, none of us were alive then doing that. Our lives say the same thing every day. When we say we can be our savior, we look at you at the cross and say, I don't need you. Who are you? You're not king of my life. When we try to take control of our idols, we say that your death wasn't worth it. We said it was a nice example of a, a good teaching, but not savior, not hope. Lord, allow this to set into our lives to make a difference. That we come to the cross, allow our burdens to roll off our back. Like Pilgrim's progress, we kneel down and we understand that you bear them better than us. That we don't have to, we are free. And your yoke is light. I pray, Lord, allow us to have a good week and a good rest of the day, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.